Hello, great to see you again. James Paniki with you and welcome to yet another MNEX podcast with the very latest and most significant news in regulatory affairs brought to you with the assistance of our team of reporters around the world. This week, something of a particular focus to talk about our new special report covering the American Bar Association's Antitrust Spring Meeting 2021. Kushita Vasant and Max Fillion were part of our team of reporters covering the event and they will be joining us to tease out some of the big issues that emerged during the conference. And you might want to have our special report at your virtual fingertips before we get started. If so, just go to mlexmarketinsight.com and you'll be able to download a copy in a few easy steps. mlexmarketinsight.com After that, we'll cross to Southeast Asia to talk about recent antitrust initiatives by the ASEAN Regional Grouping. MLEX's reporter Jet Tomazo Santos will be with us in just over 15 minutes from now. Well, yes, indeed, the ABA antitrust conferences are always a focal point of MLEX's coverage. The spring conference was held online, of course. Nonetheless, there was plenty of ground covered and no stone was left unturned by our reporters. To tease out some of those themes, I'm joined now by Kushita Vasant, a senior antitrust reporter based in Washington, D.C., and Max Fillion, an antitrust correspondent also working out of our D.C. bureau. Um, Max, starting from you, the Federal Trade Commission and its acting chairwoman, Rebecca Slaughter, announced a new rulemaking group at the conference, which uh, garnered a lot of attention. What did the discussion look like on that front? Sure. Um, yeah, they, they announced it um, uh, on the Thursday of the conference. Uh, they like to they always like to make a little news. Uh, so that was their big announcement. And, it, and it's an endeavor uh, that the agency hasn't really taken on uh, since, since the Reagan era. And so uh, they're just starting their work. Uh, it's a little unclear still exactly what they might do. But acting chair Slaughter uh, gave a little bit of a preview. Uh, she said she would like the group to uh, to focus on uh, what she called data related rulemaking, um, and that that would sort of marry uh, both privacy and competition aspects uh, when looking at uh, tech companies. And uh, she also said that it might be able to address uh, some gaps that the agency uh, sees uh, potentially being left uh, from a Supreme Court ruling that they're expecting soon. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, in the U.S. is looking at uh, whether the agency, the FTC, has uh, restitution authority. And, and if that's taken away from them, then it, it could sort of take the teeth out of their enforcement a little bit. Um, but Slaughter said uh, one of the ways they could address that is through this new rulemaking group. All right. Now, Kushita, moving on to uh, some of the things that you've been covering, there was a panel dedicated to US judges' perspective on antitrust litigation. What do you think were the key takeaways on that front? What are judges the most concerned about as far as you could tell? Uh, yeah, so that was a really interesting panel. Uh, there were four district court judges uh, from across different uh, states in the US. And uh, it was a very engaging panel. Uh, the, the judges spoke a lot about what they would like lawyers to do uh, when they're litigating cases in their respective courts. And uh, I, I guess they also were just really eager to, to get back into the courtroom. They were, they were very concerned and, and they made it a point to, uh, to ensure that 
you know, they limit discovery in cases. So uh, Judge Amit Mehta of the uh, DC District Court, he's got this very um, important case, uh, the, the DOJ and the state's uh, litigation in a search monopolization complaint against Google. And uh, he, he basically said, you know, like, I've had to put my foot down and uh, make sure that uh, both sides are balanced when it comes to demanding documents and sort of negotiating on what documents they're actually going to come up with. Um, and, and then there was another judge who was like, you know, we really want to make sure that just the discovery dispute doesn't become a mini litigation of its own, which I think in the Google case is happening. Uh, Max has been covering that that case, and um, in fact, there was just a hearing this morning in in, in, in that um, matter. And uh, this discovery dispute has been going on for almost three months now. Uh, and and then on the West Coast, there was uh, Judge John Tiger of the Northern District of California, and uh, he echoed similar concerns. and And he said, "Look, we have a lot of patent cases, and these companies have a lot of money at stake. So you know, the cost of." The legal proceedings is, is really not a dampener for these companies because there's there's so much money at stake that they're willing to you know fight uh, to the last breath on, on on these kind of things. So that was one thing, um, and and then there were um, other concerns raised. For instance, you know, um, economic experts and the kind of uh, evidence that they put forth. Uh, Judge Mehta is not part of the antitrust bar, uh, but he was very explicit in saying that. The choice of economic expert that a party brings to the stand or the reports that they submit has an outsized determination on a case. So he said that he'd like to see expert evidence, economic evidence, well in advance of a hearing so that he can ask, you know, coherent questions. Mm. Is there a sense that maybe the judges have been overwhelmed by the economic detail of some of that testimony? I get the sense, and some of this is informed by... Uh, what I see academics or what I see enforcers say on public platforms. Uh, And in fact, what Senator Amy Klobuchar has been saying, that judges aren't really comfortable when it comes to, you know, dealing with economic evidence. I'm not saying that they're they're not trained. It's, It's just something that they might not see how it relates to the real world impact if it's put in a very uh, sort of technical language. So, so in a way, yes, they, they might be a little overwhelmed with that. Well, what guidance can antitrust lawyers take for the future when they're litigating cases from these comments? Oh, so for one, uh, Judge Tiger said he's going to come up with a, with a certain beta test. Uh, and and he, he, he made sure to say that, you know, I'm going to keep changing the way I approach discovery disputes. So you can't hold it against me in, in the next hearing because I know lawyers are listening to this panel. Uh, so, yes, they said that, you know, we, we are going to limit discovery uh, because otherwise it just gets out of hand and you can't actually get to the point. Like the, the trial date would just get, you know, way blown out of the calendar. Uh, so I think this is this is one very important takeaway because we have the Facebook uh, monopolization case that was filed by um, 30, uh, 38 states as well as the U.S. Federal Trade Commission. And I think... Uh, we're still waiting for a first hearing in that case, and it's going to come up at some point. But this is one thing that big tech companies, which are, you know, sort of under the radar, need to be mindful of. And, and also the agencies, because, yes, I mean, who wouldn't want to see all the juicy internal documents that, you know, these big tech companies have? Uh, their executives have been exchanging. So this is going to be a major challenge going forward. 
the the other takeaway from the judges panel is that um, Amit Mehta uh, from the DC District Court was very particular. He 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 said you know the best way to present expert testimony to a judge is that it really all does start at the very beginning, and that is the choice of the expert you put forward. And he was. He he came he came up with this term human elements. He said the human elements of what an expert can bring to a case uh, that shouldn't be lost in pursuit of uh, you know what the evidence uh, provides or what the expert has to say. And he also said like you have to be very careful in the kind of expert you choose. Like just because that expert is good at presenting themselves in court, that shouldn't be the only criteria. You you. you a company or a party should really be vetting some of these factors early on. Like it's, it has an outsized determination on the case and how it ends up. Max Kushita has just mentioned uh, in passing Facebook and Google. So this brings us to antitrust enforcement against big tech. Uh, and that is an issue which received a lot of attention with some conference goers debating what kind of remedies uh, enforcers should seek to put an end to what could be argued is their monopolistic behaviour. What were some of the most notable suggestions in your view? Yeah, that's right. Um, You know, there's been a lot of uh, uh, big cases filed uh, since they held the conference last year. The cases have been filed, and so now it's time to focus on getting the remedies right. Um, That's what uh, Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser said uh, on a panel. His office is involved in uh, a couple of suits against uh, Facebook and Google. And uh, that's right. They they don't want to uh, uh, take a swing and a miss, as, as we say here in the U.S. Um, and and so, uh, again, Slaughter uh, was out on a couple of different panels um, talking about this. Uh, it, she is of the opinion that uh, U.S. law favors structural remedies that would sort of be uh, the kind of break them up. Uh, that's the sort of common uh, way to refer to that. Um, and and she basically said, look, you know, this is this is a clean way to do it. Um, if you want to go the behavioral remedies route, then uh, you know you're going to have the government involved in your business uh, for a long time. And uh, and someone also asked her, uh, well, you know, you're not the only one bringing a case uh, against these companies. Uh, you know, the, referencing um, uh, some action in Europe. And, and Australia and, and everywhere else, and uh, uh, Slaughter said, "Well, you know, that's the that's the price of doing business." Uh, so she didn't seem too worried about you know conflicting. Uh, remedies and and you know finally she also said that um, uh, aside from what they're going to ask for from the courts uh, she she called uh, for for the U.S. Congress to take action they, they could put forward antitrust reforms that address problems in big tech uh, and and elsewhere um, and you know she she said ultimately there's a deterrence problem in the U.S. there's a lot of deals that should never make it out of the boardroom and so U.S. Congress needs to act to, uh, uh, to to stop that from happening. All right. So fighting words there from uh, Slaughter. Um, let's move on, uh, Kushita, to patent disputes. So patent disputes and abuses in patent licensing have also featured at the ABA conference. What are uh, the enforcer's most pressing concerns when it comes to standard essential patents? You know, the uh, Gail Levine from, from the USFTC was very vocal 
about uh, how the agency is going to keep an eye out for abuses when it comes to stand- standard essential patent licensing and, and negotiations. Uh, especially because now we are no longer talking about cellular technology in you know the traditional sense. We are now moving to the internet of things. We are moving to connected devices. Connected cars is where that's where the latest battleground is. Um, you must be aware of this uh, really high profile case in, in the European Union uh, between Nokia and Daimler and Daimler's automotive suppliers. And um, the way Levine talked about these uh, uh, elements of that case, it, it's clear that even though something of that sort hasn't really taken place on American soil yet or in the American jurisdiction, uh, enforcers on this side of the Atlantic are very much watching what happens with the European Court of Justice, with the European Commission. The important questions that are coming up is at what level in the product value chain of, let's say, a car or a fridge uh, should a license be granted? And does a patent holder have the right to decide uh, whether it's going to grant a license to the end device maker? Or should it also be mandated to grant a license to even the chip maker or, you know, the module maker where that chip is inserted? All of this has a lot of money riding on it. There's a lot of royalty at stake, uh, which is why these these are very contentious disputes and they're not going to go away anytime soon. What about antitrust enforcers in other parts of the world, for instance, South Korea? What's the sense of uh, how that might influence discussion underway in the United States? Uh, so um, South Korea, there was uh, there was an official from the anti-monopoly division of the Korea Fair Trade Commission who was speaking on the panel, and I sort of wish he had given a bit more forward-looking guidance. Uh, that's not to say he didn't. Uh, he he categorically said that you know the KFTC will keep a close eye on anti-competitive practices by patent holders, including SCP holders. I think that's a very strong statement uh, because. Um, Patent abuses can happen on both sides. Uh, Patent users can also hold out on paying royalties. Um, He referred to this Qualcomm case, uh, the no license, no chips Qualcomm case that went all the way up to the Korean Supreme Court. Uh, And he also said it's difficult to generalize Fran cases because South Korea has, has had very few examples. But the agency looks at the act of restricting competition by an SEP holder illegal. And that could mean, you know, not granting licenses or sort of holding up a company in terms of granting licenses. Okay, Max. Now, since the uh, widespread protests for racial justice that we saw in the United States last year, there's been, oh, in fact, all around the world last year, there's been a growing discussion in the antitrust space over how to apply an anti-racist lens to enforcement. We've discussed that quite extensively in a previous podcast, but how did that discussion pan out at the ABA conference? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, there was a, uh, a panel of former enforcers uh, basically uh, dedicated to this topic. And, and um, you know, as, as our fellow reporter Curtis Eichelberger put it, um, it was sort of the be- – it sounded like the beginning of a discussion where you're really asking questions more uh, than, than producing answers. But that said, uh, there was there seemed to be some agreement that you know a, a deeper consideration of of how antitrust enforcement affects different marginalized groups uh, it might make 
enforcement fairer in ways uh, that the uh, largely white establishment is blind to. Um, you know, they, they were kicking around some ideas, uh, for example, um, you know, assessing uh, the magnitude of business decisions or, or any other sort of anti-competitive uh, behavior, assessing the magnitude, uh, the impact of that um, on, uh, on different uh, groups based on their uh, economic circumstances. And, uh, and, and, you know, beyond enforcement, the, the ABA said uh, that it was looking at, or at least the antitrust section said they were looking at its membership. They were trying to give more opportunities, you know, writing articles, uh, taking part in programs uh, to people of color. Um, and, and beyond that, there was a little bit of news uh, from the Department of Justice's antitrust division. The acting head there, Richard Powers, uh, said uh, that the, the division is looking at its hiring practices uh, to make sure that they're uh, recruiting and employing people from uh, historically underrepresented groups. And, and, and beyond uh, looking at the people that they're hiring, uh, Power said that they should also uh, take a look at the experiences of, of their uh, current employees uh, uh, from these groups and, uh, and develop a, what he called a comprehensive action plan. Um, there, there wasn't much detail beyond that, but it's uh, definitely something to keep an eye out for. Indeed. Sounds like that that discussion has got some way to go uh, yet. But Kushita and Max, thank you for all of your work covering the ABA conference and for putting together uh, the special report. We really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, James. Kushita Vasant and Max Fillion cover antitrust for MLEX from Washington, D.C. They were part of our coverage of the American Bar Association's antitrust spring meeting for 2021. And if you download our special report, you'll be able to read Kushita and Max's work alongside that of our team of antitrust M&A trade and digital risk reporters. It's certainly worth the read. Just go to mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. And if you're interested in the issue of minority representation in US antitrust, which was mentioned just now by Max, well, uh, my recent chat with MLEX's Curtis Eichelberger offers a great summary of recent developments on that front. On our webpage, you'll see a News Hub tab. That's where you have to click for recent writing and podcasts. And my chat with Curtis is dated January the 29th. Coming up, will Southeast Asian leaders find common answers to their digital antitrust questions? You're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And we're honoured to be in your feed again this week. I'm James Paniki from MLEX's Asia-Pacific team. Now, Southeast Asian countries appear to have a lot in common on the antitrust front. Almost all of them have been facing the challenge of regulating digital companies. So issues of data dominance, platform ecosystems, algorithmic pricing... The members of the Southeast Asian regional grouping ASEAN have all been grappling with these themes. Jet Tomazo Santos leads MLEX's Southeast Asian coverage and she has written an illuminating piece of analysis on the challenges facing ASEAN members. And Jet joins me now from Jakarta. Uh, Jet, firstly, uh, just give us some context about where this regional concern over the regulation of tech companies is coming from. 
Okay, James. So just like everywhere else, e-commerce, the digital economy, these are hot topics among regulators in Southeast Asia now. It's not really new, but all of this was sort of accelerated by the pandemic. Last year, all of a sudden, everybody went online and a lot of SMEs realized they're not as competitive in the online marketplace. So they can't compete against cheap goods from China, and they're not as well financed as tech startups that have venture capital funds to burn. And so competition regulators were sort of forced to quickly face questions they've probably been putting off. I remember at the end of last year, when I was talking to the heads of competition regulators in Indonesia, Singapore, the Philippines, Thailand, everyone said e-commerce is their priority this year. But thankfully, everyone is still in the study mode and no one is really rushing to go out and issue new regulations. You know, it's fascinating. In the various webinars and conferences I've been attending over the past couple of months, all these regulators in different countries are all looking at the same issues and asking the same questions. Should relevant markets be redefined to include product ecosystems? This possession of big data create dominance? How should they deal with algorithmic pricing? Are ex-ante regulations like the ones we're seeing in Europe, are these suitable for Southeast Asia as well? So they're listening to officials from Europe, the United Kingdom, Australia, the US, and they're talking to regional uh, industry representatives as well, trying to figure out what they should do or even if they should do anything at all. And just to be super clear, is this something that you're noticing in all Southeast Asian countries or is it specific to certain jurisdictions? Well, it's more prominent, of course, in the more advanced economies, uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, Thailand and Vietnam, where e-commerce really picked up steam over the past year. Not so much in the smaller economies like Brunei, Laos, Cambodia and Myanmar. All right. So what does industry have to say about this? What has the response of digital companies been? Well, as you can expect, um, they're cautioning against more regulations, which is always their stance. Um, on the one hand, I hear you know, regulators in Southeast Asia cite the big four, Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple. And they say they don't want the same thing happening in Southeast Asia, where we you know we do have our own homegrown tech giants. But industry folks are saying, hold on, digital markets here are less mature. We're still much more dynamic. Uh, no one is really regionally dominant yet. Uh, and even if you do succeed in the biggest market, it doesn't guarantee you'll dominate in the rest of the region, which is what we've seen with Gojek. You know, it is the leader in Indonesia, but Grab is bigger in all other markets they compete in. They're also saying, we are looking at the same regulatory trends that you're seeing in Europe. We know what's coming and we'd rather self-regulate than face more regulations from you, especially the ex-ante ones that we're seeing in the UK. Uh, they claim it's not going to work well in the ASEAN context, which is a much more dynamic, fast-changing uh, market. In certain markets like the Philippines and Indonesia, um, tech companies are also claiming you can't um, put a limit to or you can't control our size, especially since um, it's really only the big ones who can afford to quickly scale up and uh, provide what the market needs. 
it's a typical balance regulators have to find between doing too much and not doing enough. But of course, with the unique features of Southeast Asian markets to consider. Mm. Well, given those reservations, given the fact that um, so many Southeast Asian companies are obviously would prefer to be able to self-regulate and what company wouldn't prefer to be able to self-regulate rather than have regulation imposed on it. What are officials, what are regulators in Southeast Asia now likely to do? So the responses will vary based on the priorities of the government and the size of the market. Singapore, for example, it's planning to release its updated competition guidelines soon in line with the recommendations of its digital market study last year. But given that this is Singapore, as usual, we can expect it to maintain a business-friendly stance. As an executive from Lazada recently pointed out, uh, Singapore is a tiny market. And so if it makes its regulations too restrictive, whether it be for data privacy or competition law, they're only going to make it less attractive for digital companies to go into their economy. Um, For the Philippines, there are a lot of moving parts. So lawmakers, they want to impose more regulatory restrictions on e-commerce platforms, mostly for consumer protection, but these might also have competition impacts, such as you know creating an unlevel playing field between foreign and local players. The central government, though, has a far more business-friendly stance because it wants to bring in the investments. Uh, the Philippine antitrust regulator, on the other hand, is a little bit more wary. Um, it's been raising concerns about potential problems, but at this point, um, I don't see any new regulatory risk yet. Uh, especially from the competition aspect. And Jet, Indonesia is where things might get a little bit uh, complicated, right? Because, uh, again, there are so many competing interests um, in the country, and that's something that you've reported on quite extensively. Yes, you're right, James. So Indonesia has always had a bit of a nationalist flavour to its policymaking. We saw that recently when the government said They wanted to immediately regulate e-commerce platforms to protect SMEs from cheap Chinese manufacturers. This was sort of a knee-jerk response to a trending hashtag about how Shopee was killing SMEs. And and just remind us what Shopee is, just very quickly. Uh, So Shopee is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, e-commerce platform right now in the region. It's owned by the C Group, based out of Singapore, but it does host a lot of vendors from China, like the cheap factories from Guangzhou. And that's how they're able to offer really cheap prices that SMEs in Indonesia and the Philippines are struggling to compete with. And so what was the complaint leveled against Shopee? What was the the whole hashtag campaign about? Yes. So every month, Shopee, Lazada, all these e-commerce platforms go on their huge sales, right? And Indonesian SMEs have been struggling to compete uh, at those low prices. And the allegation or the accusation is that the only way the Chinese vendors are able to do this is because they're engaging in predatory pricing practices. Now, when I asked the competition regulator about this, they said, we do already have laws against predatory pricing. If we have evidence, if there are indications that this is happening, we can go ahead and investigate. But the trade ministry wants to regulate e-commerce platforms to sort of make them regulate their own vendors because there's only so much reach the Indonesian competition regulator has in terms of, say, enforcing against a factory in China. 
All right, that brings us to Malaysia, where the regulator appears to be focused more on bid rigging now, right, and is uh, appears to be working on revising its law to include merger law. You've reported on this uh, previously. Tell us something about that. Yeah, so in Malaysia, uh, the MYCC is actually just a lot more focused on bid rigging now, but it has proposed the largest and perhaps most controversial fine on a tech-based company in the region, a $20 million fine on Grab for abuse of dominance. And this was over a contract clause that prevents drivers from promoting and providing advertising services for its competitors. A lot of lawyers have found this controversial, to say the least. But that's still um, a proposed decision. It's not final yet. But We are now hearing calls from lawmakers in Malaysia to end Grab's monopoly in the ride-hailing sector. So if this gains traction, uh, then that same attitude could face other big tech companies. Okay, so finally, just walk us through what the state of play is in Thailand and Vietnam. Okay, so in Thailand and Vietnam, they both have relatively new competition regimes, recently amended regimes. So they're not yet that aggressive at this point. The antitrust regulator um, does have an ongoing probe into online food delivery services. This was started last year in the middle of the pandemic. It released guidelines from them later last year, but we haven't seen uh, the outcome of that probe yet. But I do know that they are preparing to take on more e-commerce related issues this year. Vietnam has strong e-commerce regulations, but its competition commission, it it's still finding its footing. Actually, the new competition authority has yet to be formally established, and that's still something that we're waiting for this year. All right, that brings us to a broader discussion about ASEAN, which is the regional grouping. Uh, For those unfamiliar with it, it is uh, clearly nothing like the European Union in the sense that there is no common market. Uh, It is uh, really more of a a forum to canvas common uh, issues. Is there a chance of an ASEAN approach to this uh, regulatory challenge? So ASEAN itself is not a supranational body, as you pointed out, and they're very careful actually to not directly interfere in each other's business. The region also is not monolithic. The legal regimes vary from one country to another. The levels of social economic development are different and government priorities are different. But of course, a more harmonized ASEAN approach would make it easier for regional companies to comply. In fact, they're already struggling with the various data protection regimes across the region and the different merger control regimes. So a more harmonized approach applying to e-commerce and other digital economies, especially since all of these operate across borders, that would make sense. And I do think ASEAN regulators realize that, especially since they have this goal of creating an ASEAN economic community by 2025. So there is now an ASEAN forum for competition regulators, and they've been working on a regional competition and consumer protection plan. They've been studying ways to make their different laws work better together instead of making them similar. So they call it convergence instead of harmonization. And they are trying to come up with a common understanding of cross-border issues so that they can conduct joint actions. Specifically on the digital economy, they're looking into market definitions, multi-sided platforms, competition issues on e-commerce platforms, and electronic payment solutions. So we'll probably see some level of harmonization ahead especially when it comes to cross-border cases. 
but an EU-style approach for Southeast Asia is really a pipe dream. All right. Well, on that slightly um, pessimistic note, let's uh, end it for today, Jet. But it has been great talking. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you too, James. Nice talking to you. Have a good day. Jet Tomaso Santos, MLEX's Southeast Asian correspondent, speaking to us from Indonesia. And her analysis of what lies ahead for ASEAN is ready for you to read. Our website is mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. And I regret to inform you that today's podcast has come to the finish line. We'll be with you again next Friday, and I hope you can join me then. From James Paniki and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.